Hello, welcome to Acamedia's podcast series, Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. I'm Joseph Clark, a part-time lecturer of film studies at Simon Fraser University and a sessional instructor at the University of British Columbia and at Emily Carr University of Art and Design. I'm also a co-chair of the SCMS Precarious Labor Organization. I'll be moderating and participating in this episode on academics. We're very thankful to be part of the Acamedia podcast sponsored by SCMS and the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies. The Talking Television podcast series started last summer by exploring television's role in mediating twin pandemics of COVID-19 and anti-Black violence. Our second season is coming to a close, and we continue to bring together media scholars and media makers to think and talk together about how television and how television studies may best speak to those peculiar and surreal times. The second season so far has included episodes on politics, tactics, economics, optics, aesthetics, publics, ethics, and this episode, as I said, focusing on academics. How have these twin pandemics of COVID-19 and racial injustice affected academia? How have they underscored the importance of analyzing television? And how might they force a reimagination of the role of television studies inside and outside the academy? Here to talk about these questions, we have joining us a wonderful panel. Lisa Guerrero, a Vice Provost for Inclusive Excellence and Professor of Comparative Ethnic Studies at Washington State University. Hi, everyone. Glad to be here. Lauren Harold, a recent PhD in the program in Screen Cultures at Northwestern University and a new Visiting Assistant Professor of Critical Identity Studies at Beloit College in the fall. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, Victoria Johnson, Professor of Film and Media Studies at the University of California, Irvine, and the President-Elect of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Hi, it's really lovely to be here with all of you today. Andy Owens, a Lecturer in Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. And Sharon Shahaf, the founder of Academic Writers Unblock. Hi, it's so good to be here. And again, I'm Joe Clark. I'm really glad to be here as well. Okay, let's kick it off. We'll start with our first question. How do you think the pandemic has exacerbated the crisis in higher education and the crisis in the humanities? So we're starting with the uh, small questions. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say I have just concluded, like literally last week, concluded spring quarter. And so I'm still kind of in a fog about Zoom life. Uh, but I do think that uh, one of the issues that's certainly been raised in our university system is a longer term assessment of remote learning for curricula that perhaps in the past hadn't been considered to be amenable to remote learning. And I think that's something that people are now kind of, not necessarily on alert about, but certainly um, navigating what changes might take place in terms of the identity of on-campus versus off-campus curricula. This is Lisa, and I, uh, I agree with Vicki's point. I also think that what we've seen coming out of the pandemic or muddling through the pandemic is a real distillation of the social inequities that our students are really burdened with. Uh, I think that there was an assumption that we could 
move teaching online. And while it would be different, it would just be a shift from not being face-to-face to moving online. And those assumptions of that transition for students really erased a lot of social inequity from class inequity to inequity based in disabilities, inequities based in vulnerable housing situations, right? We really erased, in my account, we really erased a lot of the humanity of the students um, because we just thought, oh, well, it's just about being on screen instead of being face-to-face. And I think WSU, my institution, right, we're going back face-to-face, but I think we really need to uh, grapple with a lot of those issues that were made plain uh, in the kind of instruction that we provided, right? Because those are things that are ongoing and that we need to do a better job of dealing with. Can I jump in? This is uh, Sharon. I am in a unique position because, you know, I'm kind of coming back into the fall to talk to uh, my fellow SEMSers and, you know, that's uh, always my uh, my academic home. Um, but I've stepped out of, you know, being a part of an institution. But in that way, in fact, I have access as a writing coach and somebody that's working with people who are uh, experiencing problems with, uh, with their academic writing, which is basically academic writers, right? Um, I am seeing from where I sit an epidemic of burnout. Um, so, Lisa, you talked about, uh, about students, and of course that's very important, but I want to raise that issue of faculty, especially moms, especially marginalized people of all you know, race, ethnicities, especially international faculty, and that, that pertains to students as well, right? People who have not, who've been you know, caught up in impossible travel situations, are removed from uh, ability to visit back home and things like that. And it's it's just, if it was already up to, you know, my ears dealing with people burning out, now it's above my head. People are, I just see anguish. I don't see a lot of response from the institutions, to say the least, <laughs> I'm putting it mildly. In fact, it seems like there's more piling on on faculty without addressing that we've been doing this for a while now at home, with our kids at home, et cetera, et cetera. So I know this is stating the obvious, but um, I definitely think that that, uh, that exacerbated something that I was already seeing. This was already happening. Uh, and, and another piece is the graduate students, because I see this really eroding the, the last remnant of people hoping to make this a career that's going to have a job at the end. So that, you know, it's the, the, the adjunct crisis, all of that, uh, I think, is coming to a head with this uh, pandemic. But this was already going on before. So I definitely think that it it just heightened those challenges. I'll just jump in because uh, this is Joe. Uh, The PLO did a survey this early spring of contract workers to find out exactly how the pandemic was affecting their lives. And more than a third of the respondents said that they had had classes cut or contracts annulled or contracts they'd been anticipating uh, didn't come to fruition because of the pandemic. So there's a material impact on the lives of faculty um, and those impacts are felt unequally, right? Um, Faculty of color, racialized faculty are probably feeling those in even more. And again, parents and caregivers are feeling those impacts even more heavily. 
So there has been a material impact. Um, but I think one on the flip side, the pandemic has also made those things a little bit more visible. And some of the challenges that precariously employed faculty face have actually become shared by uh, <laughs> tenured and tenure track folks a little bit. So in some ways, I think there's a, there might be a chance for solidarity uh, on that basis, on, on using the pandemic. Um, the, the optimist in me uh, sees that although the, the immediate impacts are going to be really negative for precarious uh, folks, uh, we might be able to build on some of the things that have become obvious during the pandemic uh, to build uh, coalitions and solidarity. Yeah, I'll um, jump in. My, this is Lauren. I, I totally agree um, that the pandemic has sort of made it possible to have more open conversations about academic precarity and alternate career paths, at least for, for my colleagues and I in uh, my program. And I'll say that, yeah, it's been a really scary year to be on the job market in the past year, watching schools have hiring freezes and being really afraid for sort of my employment uh, future. Um, and at the same time, I think that has created some, as Joe was saying, has created some solidarity amongst graduate students and faculty. I'll say that, yeah, like my dissertation committee was very open, much more open than perhaps they would have been about me pursuing and applying for jobs that were not, you know, tenure track or academic jobs at all. And so I think that with the recognition that tenure track jobs are really the exception and not the rule for graduate students, and it would have, that's true anyway, but the pandemic has made it a little bit easier to talk about that. Um, I think that there is more room to talk about, you know, how else can we use our PhD to have fulfilling careers or, or what can we do after grad school that will be fulfilling that that's not a tenure track academic job, um, as well as how can we support each other through that process. And I really, yeah, I really um, think the idea of collaboration and advocacy, tenure track faculty and contingent faculty and graduate students and even undergraduate students working together is, is really exciting. This is Andy. I'll just jump in and say, I do think that the pandemic has made it very clear, if it was not clear before to many of us, that the kind of labor that we are all asked to do, whether it be as a tenure line faculty, a tenured faculty member, uh, precarious labor, something in between, that those burdens are only getting exacerbated by the pandemic. And that in a lot of ways, I have seen colleagues and friends, not only at my own institution, but also elsewhere, taking on particularly service obligations that are so far above rank that it really is concerning, I think, to a lot of people um, when you're having you know, someone like myself, who I am a lecturer, so I am considered full-time but I am not on a tenure line currently. And I see colleagues in other departments who are on a 3-3 load like myself who are still being productive in terms of whether they're research or they're practitioners and they're you know, director of undergrad study or they're DGS or they're program heads. And I think in a lot of ways that the universities need to begin to recognize that that is a kind of labor that is unfeasible in the long term. And that as much as we all, I think, beg for lines at our institutions, that demand and really that need in order to service our students has only become clearer this past year. Yeah, um, I, if I could, I would like to amplify a little bit on what Andy just said and also Lisa's first point. This is Vicki. Um, because I, I really appreciate those comments about the sort of added 
labor um, that's expected across the board. And I think that one of the things I've noticed is that um, in the economic crash of 2008 onward, um, one of the first things that was cut, um, staff were asked to combine positions, for instance, or take on uh, dual departments if they were managers, for instance, rather than one department. Um, and you also had immediately a turn to cutting student services um, and support services all over campus, which now, of course, we see I mean, obviously that, that was devastating at that juncture, but what's now been asked is, uh, particularly at my campus, we have a tremendous number of very high financial need and first generation students and uh, impacted really adversely during COVID in terms of technology access and so forth. But also, of course, wellness and mental health issues, being unhoused, uh, not having enough to eat, um, these were services that now the university has started to sort of restore some of the funding to, but also there's been a much greater expectation placed upon instructional faculty to uh, attend to those concerns of their students. And this is not something folks were trained to do, right? Um, but also, as Shalom notes, I think it also is part of the piling on where uh, particularly untenured faculty and faculty of color uh, and female faculty have been particularly impacted and expected to do, frankly, maternal care in terms of students in this moment. So I'd love to hear other people's experiences or thoughts about that as well. I would just jump in to respond, Vicki, if I could, this is Andy, that I think the point about mental health is so important, not only in seeing what all of our students went through this year. And I will say as someone who, um, who takes my teaching very seriously and is a teaching position, I think, so many of our students rose to the challenge so admirably this past year. Um, but yeah, the idea of mental health is so important in those services for not only students, but I would argue for faculty, right? The idea of what the pandemic put on us as faculty members in terms of wellness and mental health and the, at least, you know, when COVID came along around March of last year, the dime that so many of us were asked to flip on to go from in-person instruction to online, learning Zoom, learning new modalities, changing syllabi, changing assignments. And as you were saying, Vicki, that in a lot of ways, none of us were trained to do that. And I think that the resources for faculty in order to address concerns of mental health are something that I hope get amplified by uh, what has happened the past year. But this is also where those two, the, the two pandemics intersect, right? Because epidemics of anti-Black violence have consequences for students and for faculty as well. And racialized faculty and precarious faculty are often the ones who are turned to as mentors because of the nature of our predominantly white uh, institutions. Uh, and that burden of mentorship uh, and mental health that they take on 
makes it more difficult to escape precarity, right? Um, and so we have a kind of vicious circle where the problems of racial injustice as they impact the institution are exacerbated by the pandemic and vice versa. And there doesn't seem to be much recognition uh, institutionally that these two things are related. Uh, so this is Lisa, and I just wanted to respond to everything that's been said from Vicky and Andy and Joe, that I think that these dual pandemics, as I said earlier, really highlighted for people, to Sharon's point, of things that already existed, but it really was like, hey, look, no, we can't ignore this anymore. Um, and one of the things that I think needs to come out of this, and I know that we're beginning to take baby steps at my institution, is that we can no longer really uphold the kinds of assessments, tools, and metrics uh, that we have uh, for people's labor, because it has obviously historically um, done a disservice to instructors of color, particularly women of color, those instructors who are part of a precarious labor population, because what ends up happening is that those burdens that those instructional communities take on aren't evaluated in a way that is seemingly valued by the institution, wherein our colleagues, typically white tenured men, are seen as being, you know, very productive and they're given promotion and they're given tenure and they're given all of this. Meanwhile, that productivity of theirs is being underwritten by the labor of precarious instructional communities, faculty of color, women of color, so that they're allowed this space. And so we really cannot function anymore as institutions with those types of metrics and assessments that don't give the proper value to the work that's being done by those communities. I think what Lisa said was so important. And if there are white male tenured faculty in our field listening to this, I hope that you start showing up more <laughs> to, to your meetings and to your service commitments. Um, if you're looking for a sign, this is it. Like, please start showing up because you're, you know, the female colleagues, the colleagues of color in your departments are really tired. <laughs> and, and like service is a part of academic life that everyone needs to participate in. And what, what I, was going to, I was going to say earlier that so much of what everyone is talking about um, in terms of the, you know, unequal labor falling upon faculty of color and underrepresented, underserved, marginalized faculty. It's true for graduate students as well. Um, graduate students who are, who are teaching, or, you know, either as TAs or as instructors of record and are also doing their research, perhaps also trying to finish classes and ment mentoring undergrads as well, um, you know, and doing graduate student advocacy. So I think their graduate students are also very tired, particularly those of us who are, you know, LGBTQ, who are students of color, who have, you know, struggle with mental illness. Uh, so I think that um, there's a, there's a, a nationwide, um, you know, unionization movement for graduate students because we're often not thought of as workers. I'm still speaking as a graduate student, even though I just graduated. Um, but that's my, you know, it's my the experience that's close to my heart right now. Um, but I, I think that, you know, the labor that we do is often, um, we're just not counted or undercounted. Or we're just seen as students rather than colleagues and collaborators and workers uh, who are also struggling right now. Do folks think that television scholars and television scholarship has something particular 
to speak to these inequities now that like so many of our mentorship relationships, our teaching relationships, all of that emotional labor that we've been talking about that breeds inequity is now being mediated by screens. Is there something that television scholarship can bring to those inequities, uh, like a critical perspective on those inequities as they are mediated by screens that might be productive? I have gotten more comments during the uh, COVID era of instruction about how relevant the content is and you know the methods in terms of cultural studies, critical race theory. These are now, even more than in the past, I think students are really connecting with the value of those questions um, and with their resonance for their day-to-day navigation of what's going on in terms of the news um, and the broader world around them. I will say that one real one of the gratifications of this period has been really connecting with the students about the course material in a way that goes even above and beyond what it had in the past. Yeah, and I think this is Andy that I've had the exact same experience, that I have had such wonderful conversations with students this past year to understand, uh, you know, what they're going through and to see historical resonance through television as I teach it in some of my classes. And so when I teach things like Julia, right, or I teach Mary Tyler Moore, and we talk about Black feminism, or we talk about the women's movement, and I think students now have a different appreciation of social justice movements and how there is a history and a legacy there that I'm really happy to bring to them. And I'll also say not only content-wise, but I think I've seen not only in my own institution, but at other places as well, that television scholarship, television scholars are really, I think, productively challenging the structure of academic departments in some ways, that departments around the country and around the world, perhaps, that were, say, very dyed-in-the-wool in terms of a film studies tradition, right, a very hardcore film studies with a capital F, are now realizing exacerbated again by the pandemic, that students want media, right? They don't just want film. They want to talk about television. They want to talk about digital media. And that has a link with obviously what many universities are concerned about right now, which is student enrollment. And so I think, and I hope that that can be something that will productively come out of this is for departments to reevaluate their curricula, to look at different kinds of options for students that serve them, right? And what they want to learn about. Um, I know in my own experience, uh, I've been at Iowa for three years, a course that I teach called Race, Gender, and Sexuality on Screen, which started as a 25-person seminar, has now grown to a 60-person lecture that has a wait list every semester. And I don't attribute that to myself. I attribute to the topicality of what we've experienced the past several years. And that if you look at enrollment numbers in classes, students want to talk about these issues and they can really do so incredibly articulately. Yeah, I will say when I when I was my very first faculty position, I was told that and this was not meant as a compliment that uh, as a television scholar, I was a revenue-bearing faculty member. (laughs) And uh, in this current position, very early days in my time here, I was told in a committee meeting for a school-wide committee, another scholar says to me, 
well, if I taught The Simpsons, I would have all the students as well. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, because that's what I do. But I will say uh, to Andy's point that indeed my experience in looking across uh, in the U.S. context in terms of media studies and the formation of departments is that indeed that is where the student growth and enrollment growth is, is happening within the humanities. And of course, also we touch upon the social sciences depending on what campus you're on. So um, I think that this is a moment to really underscore the resonance of the kind of work we do. And I think also um, in terms of my own students here, they always only think in terms of media across media. They think of film, TV, advertising, podcasting, video gaming, all as all you know things that we have to look at together in combination. This is Lisa. Yeah, I would add uh, to Vicky's point, yes, that students really think about media across media. And one of the things that I have found in particular during the pandemic, but even previous to this, is that students are really hungry to become critically literate around media and being able to read. I, I think back to when I was in graduate school which seems like eons ago, um, but one of my mentors was Herman Gray, and he had just come out with Cultural Moves, uh, where he made the argument that at the time was so audacious, right, that it isn't about good or bad representation, right? It is about uh, a type of critical representation throughout media. And, you know, that was so that was so new at the time. Um, and now here we are in 2021. And I think about all of the different ways in which people access media, whether it be television media, of which there are hundreds of ways to access television media, right? Um, but also social media or film media or, you know, advertisement, thinking of consumerism and all of this. And students really are becoming much more savvy than I think I ever was as an undergraduate or even a graduate student uh, in the ways in which they don't just want to access and consume media, that they want to be very critical about how media operates to structure the world that they live in. Um, and so even as they're fans of, you know, so much television, film and social media uh, forms, they're also very critical about how that is being used. And I think that is what really makes television studies, film studies, pop culture studies absolutely necessary, specifically, I mean, humanities generally, because of the ways that we need to become critically literate about these narratives that circulate and that we consume. What's the role for media specificity in that conversation? If our students are collapsing all these media forms, uh, what's the role for television studies as a particular thing and media specificity as a particular thing in that conversation? Is there still one or has the pandemic just dissolved all categories? I mean, if, if I'm at this Vicky again, it's still really important to consider what the promise and logic of something like broadcast media is. In that sense, it is still important to kind of make those distinctions. 
And I'm not saying students don't make those distinctions, they do, but they also think very much across media that you wouldn't consider yourself a, just a film scholar, right? It's always already together with other media. Um, and I think also with practice and with thinking about how one can integrate theory and practice as well. Well, I'm going to try to try elegantly bring this kind of back around. I, I love geeking out about television studies and how important it is, you know, the, should the film scholars and the media scholars be friends like the cowboys and the farmers and, and all of that. But I, I'm looking for a way to kind of bring it back to the fold of what was you know, discussed by uh, many of you earlier on, which is the, the crisis right now. I guess what I would love to see and have not seen throughout my own experience and definitely from hearing from, you know, my, my students and colleagues is that it would be nice to see the discipline walking the walk as it's talking the talk, right? And so that's, a, that's an elegant way to say, I think, you know, we, we can have people who, who can go in a classroom and teach the heck out of cultural, you know, diversity and even talk in faculty meetings about how important it is Etc. Etc. But they're creating a toxic culture in your own institution through their own actions. Um, they're not inclusive. They are discriminative against punitive even against people who are of color of womb. We we know the marginalized, right? Um, and and even you know uh, they can be part of that group and still marginalize other people. So uh, I was kind of rolling my eyes a little bit, but I'm trying not to be cynical. You know, I, I really, my intention is to, to try to help heal the situation, but I really think the toxicity and maybe some of the people in this conversation, I think some of you are going through it and some of you may be a little sheltered from it. Although I'm sure, you know, you, you get plenty, um, but, but I just, I don't feel the urgency of the crisis that I see when I talk in, you know, I'm talking with my clients every day and, you know, my former students who I trained for jobs who are no longer there. And what I would like to pivot this to maybe, you know, or maybe not, but um, I think there's a role that the conference can play. I think there's a role because for me, when, you know, I was denied tenure and that was not a fun way to understand that I am leaving academia that I then embraced. But, you know, so what I'm trying to say is that the conference is ex-territory. I didn't have to be in an institution. So during the time, and I know my students are in times of transition and they're not employed or, you know, they're fantastic, but not, there are no jobs. The conference, although it depends on the institutions and has a relationship with the institution, it, it can be this other space where we can be practicing this inclusion that we like to speak of so much. Uh, I will also say this, ever since, you know, I've not been drawing a university paycheck, it did not make sense for me to travel to the conference. So I do think that the conference can, you know, be a space where there is a lot more inclusion. I think that the conference is where you see a lot of the, the best of us, the best, uh, you know, my best friends and colleagues and collaboration and connections uh, happen at the conference. And I would love for us to be more it's inclusive, but it's inclusive. It's still within those structures of academia. We are training students for jobs that are not out there, but our amazing students can do so many amazing things. Like I didn't you know, dream of the things I could do when I left you know, the structures of, of employment that we have as academia, but my amazing training at you know, the University of Texas absolutely prepared me for a life of, you know, it, it, to be an entrepreneur and 
you know, do all the things that I'm doing now. But I was terrified, right? I had no idea. And part of the, the, the reason that we're terrified to, to go out and do something outside of academic structures of employment is that there is attached shame to live in academia. I know in our world of academia, there, I really think maybe the moment is right and maybe the conference can be this space where we can embrace that, yeah, we're training amazing people to do amazing research, but if the jobs are not out there, I know we, I didn't feel good training people for jobs that weren't out there. Maybe we can pivot on creating a more, you know, opening those horizons to tell people you can go out and do other things and we actually support you and we would love for you to take the training that you got and, and remain a part of the conversations in the field as you go out and you do things that, you know, you might go out and be a television director, but you may be a, a you know, a life coach or you may be a writing coach, you may be an editor. And it could be many different things. And I'm, I'm just floating it out there. It could be a panel on the conference. It could be a career fair. It could be any kind of way to show people who are, in the, you know, we're up and coming. We want you to have jobs with dignity. We do not want you to adjunct and have, you know, jobs that are stripped of the basic dignities. Okay, I'm on off the soft books, but um, I'm wondering if there are thoughts about that. Could I ask, Sharon, what do you think, gra- particularly graduate curricula, could or should be doing better in order to really address this reality um, and also, of course, the future trajectory of this reality? And this is a fantastic question. It's a, it's a big question. And, you know, something that I was trying to um, to actually do when I was still, you know, uh, training and advising grad students, uh, a million things. I would say the first, I mean, I, you know, my business all day long, I'm helping blocked academic writers unblock. I don't think we even train academics as writers. There is a whole world out there that, you know, there is, yeah, come take my workshop, people. <laughs> Check me out. Academic writers unblock. But... If we're not even training academics as writers to know that there's a writing process that they can master and, and not have joyless toil, you know, I would say it's, it's a, a paradigm shift maybe in terms of even just our perception of it is more than okay, it is fabulous for you to get this PhD and then go out and figure out what it is that you want to be when you grow up, right? Thinking of the conference, or I don't know about the grad curriculum, but, you know, if you could bring in people that are, you know, not the BS coaches, but solid coaching means, which I hate that word, but basically our students have some kick-ass skills that they can teach other people. I know, I don't know if I can name them, but I know one of my former uh, grad people, somebody who went to school with me, is now a pitch doctor. She teaches people how to pitch. She came out and she invented that niche. I would have loved to go back in time and uh, get training as an entrepreneur, so I would not be so afraid of starting my own business because it took two more years for me to own that I actually have a business, and I didn't do invoicing. I I didn't know all that stuff. I'm not sure that should be the graduate's uh, program job, but maybe the conference could have something like that that can bring people that could talk about what it means to be an entrepreneur or they can, they can market their um, transferable skills to corporations. And, um, and on both these areas, I think it could be fantastic to offer support. Even at first, just to say, you know what, it's okay. We as SEMS, we welcome our uh, members if they need or want to expand outside of uh, structures of traditional academic employment. 
Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on on this question. This is Lauren. Well, for, I mean, I'll say yes. I'm ex- I would be excited to think about uh, with all of you what it could look like for SCMS as a conference to support different types of professional development. And I will say that the, in this past conference, there were some really great panels about this. Like Kara Degason, who was our DSO rep, planned a panel about non-traditional teaching jobs, which was really wonderful. Um, and, and just thinking about what faculty can do or what how we could shift graduate curricula, I think making some institutional changes, like an internship credit that would substitute for a class credit to, to allow students to explore, you know, what would it be like to have an internship at an art museum or at a, you know, maybe at a television station or, a, you know, at an archive. Um, I think uh, allowing students more opportunities to explore alternate careers during coursework and while they're dissertating would be huge. I mean, I think even graduate student mentors, like faculty who are mentoring graduate students, opening up that conversation with their mentees and saying, how are you feeling about this? Are you thinking of pursuing other careers? Because I think a lot of grad students are really afraid of starting that conversation with their mentors. They're worried that they're going to be judged and shamed, like Sharon was saying. Um, but now, you know, I think so faculty start off the conversation and say, you know, I'm, I want to support you. How are you doing? How can I how can I support your professional development? I think that would be huge. I think also, I've heard faculty say, well, I'm a I'm a professor, this is what I know how to how to do, and this is what I know how to train people to do. And while, of course, that's true, and I don't think professors are necessarily the best career advisors, I think faculty can work with career services centers on their campuses to coordinate those workshops and bring career services um, to your, your department or your program and have someone give a workshop on resume building or a workshop on behavioral interview skills or a workshop on networking so that graduate students start building those other types of skills of what we know how to navigate different types of job markets. And I will say the last thing that we've done in my in, in my department, we started bringing alums who do alt-ac type of jobs to come speak to the grad students and say, like, this was our career path. This is what you could do. This is why we went this route, or this is why we decided not to pursue an academic career. So I think if faculty could build on the, you know, the alumni networks or their own networks from their, you know, graduate programs, who they Everyone knows folks who did not take the tenure track route. Bring, bring those folks to your university to talk to your students so that we know that there are other ways to pursue um, successful careers or fulfilling careers um, and that we're not just sitting scared on our own because I, I think faculty really need to step up and support their grad students right now. Maybe I can bring us back around to television studies as we think about that maybe outside the role for uh, television studies outside of the academy. I think, you know, if we're thinking about graduate curricula and one of the things that I, I think the biggest steps I think we can take is to remind graduate students that by and large, they're also workers and they need to see themselves as workers. And that means that senior faculty need to regard them not just as mentees, but also as colleagues and recognize that their work is probably undercompensated. And, you know, students need to be aware of that. And then part of that process is becoming aware of the labor that you're doing and thinking about the ways that the the things that you're learning within your PhD programs can be applied to other places outside of the academy. And so that means, like, what happens to TV scholars who work outside the academy? What what can TV scholarship bring to what is actually probably the most vibrant moment? You know, thanks to social media, we have more conversations online, more democratic conversations about the nature of television and media more broadly, but 
very explicitly television, some of which is informed by TV scholarship, but a lot of which is not. So what's the role for TV scholarship in a kind of public domain um, conversation about about television and the future of television in a kind of moment of rapid change? Well, I would say just to go back, if I may, to graduate curricula a little bit, is that I think one of the things that I agree with um, several folks who have said that it really, um, it starts institutionally, right, is that I think places need to begin thinking more capaciously about what gets taught at the graduate level, and also who is allowed to teach those things at the graduate level. Um, so for instance, at my institution, um, although I am a full-time faculty member, you know, I have a PhD, I'm not allowed to teach graduate seminars. That that is just a draconian rule that I am not allowed to set foot to teach a graduate seminar, uh, which the nicest way I can put it is I don't understand. I have other thoughts on that, obviously. Um, because I think in specifically seeing how much wonderful television scholarship in particular has come out of, dare we say, the recent generation of folks who have come out of graduate school, say, in the past five, 10 years, right? I think in a lot of ways, those are the people who are doing really amazing work in TV, particularly in underrepresented communities, right? In Black TV studies, in Latinx TV studies, in queer TV studies. And those people who are getting jobs, whether they're tenure line or not, at an institution, I often see that their senior colleagues, who again tend to be more male leaning, white leaning, uh, try to protect them, right, in a certain way to say, oh, you know, you need to finish the book or whatever. So we're going to protect you a little bit. But what they're really doing is protecting themselves, right? Because they don't want to teach the service classes, they just want to teach grad seminars. And so, in some ways, I think there needs to be a push to allow younger scholars the ability to interact with graduate students in the classroom, because it turns out we are the ones who have most recently been on the job market. We are the ones who have probably most recently published. We are the ones who just submitted that book proposal, or that book just came out. We just went through it. And so, not to say that Obviously, senior folks are out of touch. That's not what I'm claiming. But I think to allow if people want, and I know that's a certain kind of labor that younger folks have to take on, but if they're comfortable doing so, I think they should be allowed the opportunity. I have two points. One is I'm going to describe myself as male-leaning from now on. That's uh, That <laughs> describes my gender well. Uh, number two is just um, that idea of how precarious folks are actually the ones doing – they're moving back and forth between the academy and outside. So if part of reshaping graduate education is to show students how they can be TV scholars in the world, then the, the people who are doing that work – in the world might be exactly those people, people who are writing scripts or doing uh, TV criticism for a broader audience and also teaching in the institution. I mean, obviously, there are tenure people doing those things, but by and large, people who are adjuncting are hustling exactly like that, moving back and forth, and share that precarity with graduate students as well as people working in the TV industry, which is its own form of precarity, right? Does anyone want to talk about, yeah, that question of um, the public, ro the role for TV scholars outside of the academy? 
One thing I would say that for people who are sort of traversing that line of public scholarship or public facing scholarship, um, whether it be blogs or vlogs or anything like that, I hope that we get to the point in you know relatively uh, short order that that kind of labor and that kind of work begins to be valued more by the institution, right, as much as it is in the public facing way. Because I think there is still such a imperative that people, particularly at Research One institutions, are constantly being told that doesn't count for the tenure file. That doesn't count for the tenure file. And I think in some ways, one of the things I hope we can think about with these dual crises of racial violence and COVID, right, and people who have done, I think we all know, such amazing public scholarship in this time is please, please, please put that in the tenure file because it counts and it's important. It seems like we have the dual problem. There's a there's a way in which uh, academia needs to make sure that uh, TV scholarship is recognized by the public as being valuable. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, TV scholars need to make the case with the institutions that their public scholarship or their public engagement is valuable. Comment or experiences? Anybody like struggled with that? Not, not with that particularly. I can. I mean, I'm trying to think. I'm t- trying to think through this question, and I don't want to be too blunt. But um, how many of you feel that your institutions <laughs> care about any of this? How do we bring this conversation? It's really nice to have this conversation, but it wasn't my lived reality. It, my lived reality of of being, you know, in a, on a tenure track, then you know, being denied tenure, leaving academia, then being not really in the market, but looking at jobs in the market, etc. Every moment, every given moment in time when you talk to somebody, they're in their rat maze. They're running their race. And, and I really appreciated, Lisa, what you know you were describing as the work that you are being invited to do in your institution. I know that you, you have an administrative position to do that. But, we, you know, I also wonder a little bit about, you know, do we, we need to be a little bit careful about how that is also used as, a, okay, now we appointed somebody to do that work. So we can continue to do our exclusionary little dance around tenure. And, you know, I, I can speak to my brilliant student who finished her brilliant PhD. I'm so proud of her. She wrote amazing scholarship in her dissertation, but, you know, went home to Korea to take a job as a speechwriter for the amazing new prime minister. It's a great job, but she wanted, she wanted a job teaching TV. You know, she did amazing research uh, between the Korean and Chinese industries you know, doing uh, television formats. And so she took a good long look at the employment structure. She took a good long long look at what happened to her own advisor. And she decided that it was no longer viable to stay in academia. So, and again, back maybe to my my positive is like back to the conference. How can we re-invite people who have fallen outside and, and then bring that voice back where they can come back and tell us and be that intellectual, that public intellectual you know, and, and, and engage these questions of the field with their new knowledge. Maybe. That's my attempt to find a silver lining here. Well, let me just say that the PLO is advocating for exactly that. I mean, we've been working hard to make it possible for precariously employed, alt-ac, unemployed, underemployed uh, folks to remain or come back to SCMS. And we're hoping that by allowing those people to maintain contact with the scholarly home, um, that we can help them to continue to produce scholarship. Because, you know, if people are not 
employed in academic institutions, it doesn't mean they're not um, doing scholarship, whether that's for public consumption or for an academic audience. Go ahead, Lauren. I, th- I mean, I think, um, Sharon, I feel like pain hearing your, your experiences. You know, it sounds like a very painful experience. And I think probably a lot of us have had experiences of discrimination or harassment or microaggressions in academia. And I do think like the institution is hierarchical and hierarchies reproduce oppression. And they're, I'm not really sure if there's a way to change things institution wide. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, but I will say that the relation, the, the healthy relationships that I have with colleagues and some faculty members, as well as staff and administrators who, who do diversity, equity, inclusion, access work at universities, have been transformative for me and have helped me find feminist homes and queer homes on campus and have helped me find folks who I trust when you can't trust everybody that you, you know, you work with. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm not sure that institutionally, there there is a way to sort of shift the whole hierarchical and oppressive structure of academia. But I think that in each of our, our, in our small spheres of influence, hopefully we can sort of start creating new and healthier relationships um, with each other and with, you know, our faculty and staff and students um, to make academia more equitable. In a very televisual moment, I'm getting the wrap it up signal from our producers. Uh, So I'm going to ask you one last question uh, that hopefully we can leave on this point. And I'll start with you, Lisa. What's something that you're looking forward to on television or in the world of television scholarship in the fall that you think is going to make you excited? I'm not exactly sure everything that's coming out, but I really hope that there is some future scholarship that is being done um, that's about to come out about how our consumption of television has changed our relationship to that medium. I'm also interested in thinking about the ways in which our viewing habits the whole binge watching phenomena through that kind of communal sharing of our experiences um, also creates intimacy. Um, I think it's really important and I think it's something that needs to be looked at a little more deeply. I would say me specifically, I'm just going to go on record and saying that I'm a true crime junkie. So Oxygen has gotten me through the pandemic, much to my husband's dismay. Um, So I'm actually working on a project about the connections between true crime and criminal justice and how those are disconnected in our consumptions of it. So don't hold your breath. It's still in the small stages, but that's something that I'm really interested in thinking about because true crime has really made this amazing explosion, disturbing explosion um, about people's fascination with it. So, Vicki, why don't you jump in next? Is there something in TV scholarship or just a TV show uh, in the fall that you're especially looking forward to something? TV wise, I am looking forward to whatever Gene Smart wants to do at any point in time uh, and to the return of the good fight. In terms of TV scholarship, I'm looking forward to reading whatever I have in the box on the floor next to me um, is due to be reviewed and uh, sure to be absolutely brilliant. Um, My summer summer work. Lauren, what are you looking forward to? 
let's see, I'm looking forward to a lot of uh, content coming out in the next six months. Well, since you were just singing, Joe, there's so many movie musicals <laughs> coming out on Netflix I feel like I'm excited about. Um, but also that show, The Chair, starring Sandra Oh, I feel like I'm looking forward to just seeing the conversations on academic Twitter about um, and how you know television scholars engage the show that's about uh, academia. Um, haven't, haven't we had enough trauma? <laughs> I mean, I love Sandra Oh. I'll watch her in anything. She's I'm so really good. curious to watch it. I feel like it's going to expose exactly how much our colleagues outside of media studies, need, and maybe lots of them within media studies, still need to think critically about their own practice and the ways that uh, our own lives are represented on screen. Yes. Um, um, and I'll say, like a personal thing, my older sister is actually also a, a media scholar and a television scholar, but she sort of works from the comm studies perspective. She has a master's of public health and she studies abortion on screen, and we've always wanted to work on something together, so we're finally working on something for um, in media res on representations of reproduction on screen. And I'm really excited to start this collaboration between somebody who does uh, media studies coming from the screen studies uh, perspective as well as somebody who does media studies from a comm studies perspective and see what happens. So I'm excited about that. Look forward to our In Media Res reproduction week. Sharon? So in, te in television, a lot of the television I'm looking forward to is Israeli, and so are you, but you don't know it yet. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking for ways to watch uh, a show that cannot be watched outside of Israel. Because So that's one of the problems. Like, I can't watch the originals once the format is resold to the territory. Uh, but there is this really amazing uh, reality show called uh, Connected, where they give normal people and celebrities uh, an opportunity to document their own lives. I think it was, uh, I think they had one or two seasons in the States, but that was on AOL TV or something uh, where it was Susan Serndon's boyfriend. But anyway, the Israeli one is this amazing cultural lightning rod that I, I'm really looking forward to be able to see that. In terms of television scholarship, I am waiting for, I, I, I kind of left the field with a question. I'm waiting for people to, to answer. I might darn well have to write it myself, but I, you know, I'm not writing scholarship right now, but I am fascinated, you know, after the four years of Trump, well, during the four years we went through with Trump, and, you know, I'm Israeli, so we've had 12 of Netanyahu, it seemed like there was an end to the era of globalization as we traditionally understood it. And so I actually had a, a seminar I proposed to uh, in my last SMS that I didn't get to go to, but uh, others have done it. Uh, is it the end of globalization? So I guess now the question is, like, are we back? And, you know, what? What is a viable discourse of globalization in a neo-fascist world? You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm thinking about these things. I'm curious about these things. I'm waiting for my uh, colleagues to write about these things. And if they don't, I might just have to roll up my sleeves and do it myself. <laughs> Time will tell. Andy, you're last. I look forward to uh, the new season of American Horror Story and also uh, Ryan Murphy doing an actual anthology uh, this uh, coming July called American Horror Stories, right? Which is going to be a actual weekly anthology. So people can finally stop actually calling American Horror Story an anthology, which it's not, right? It's a seasonal anthology, right? Um, I'm also really looking forward to just, as I think um, Vicky was saying in the box next to her, because of the demands of COVID that we've all been going through, I have not read scholarship in so long from colleagues and friends that I have been looking forward to. And so I'm really going to try my best to dedicate some time to that in the fall. 
Well, and I'll say, let's all read scholarship uh, by friends, but also by friends who maybe don't have tenured or tenure track jobs uh, to support them and you know, amplify their work. Um, I really want to thank everyone for talking about these really important issues. I want, so once again, I want to thank uh, Sharon Shahaf, uh, Lauren Harold, Andy Owens, uh, Vicky Johnson, and Lisa Guerrero. Uh, thank you all for your insightful and inspiring comments today. I also want to show appreciation for our wonderful sponsors, uh, SCMS, the Acamedia Podcast Series, the Malcolm S. Forbes Center for Culture and Media Studies at Brown University, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. We also thank Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick uh, for all their help with recording, and Todd Thompson for providing the music and editing expertise for this series. Our next episode will be the second season finale, uh, which will feature commentary and reflection by the podcast's co-organizers, uh, Brandy Monk-Payton, uh, Lynn Joyrich, and Hunter Hargraves. We're very much interested in hearing your thoughts about the season, so please send in questions and thoughts through email, talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com, Twitter with the hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, Facebook, join the Acamedia Facebook group, and then post questions there. Uh, I'm Joe Clark uh, with Talking Television in a Time of Crisis, and thanks so much for listening. Please stay well and get vaccinated if you haven't. <laughs>